Hey everyone, it's Matthew Zachary, co-founder here at Offscript Health and the host of the Out of Patients podcast. Welcome to This is Testing Our Patients, a two-part behind-the-scenes look at bringing life-saving diagnostic tests and breakthrough medicines to cancer patients in desperate need of hope. Joining us for episode one, Dude, Where's My Test?, is Allison Silberman and Lizette Figueroa. Thank you for coming on episode one of Testing Our Patients. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get right to introductions. Why don't you let our listeners know who you are, your backstory, and your role, and why you're here today. I'm Allison Silverman. I am the CEO of Stupid Cancer. Our mission is to help empower everyone affected by adolescent and young adult cancer by ending isolation and building community. I'm here today to talk about MRD and how it can be used to improve the lives of so many of our patients and make cancer suck less. I'm Lizette Figueroa. I'm the Senior Director of Education Support at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So happy to be here at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We do advocate for all blood cancer patients. And I'm here to speak to you about MRD, what MRD is, and how we could utilize MRD more effectively. So just to level set for the listeners, I was invited to my very first sort of roundtable discussion about MRD, which we'll go into later in this episode, in April of 2015. And I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had not been aware that this was a thing. And I was brought down this rabbit hole of, wow, here's something that can actually help you avoid cancer or avoid worse cancer, but patients can't get it. I was like, what do you mean they can't get it? How is, why would there be a thing that you can't get? And I was introduced to my first sort of like a debate on the FDA, and I didn't live and breathe in that space. And man, was that a rabbit hole? And here we are seven years later, and we're still having this conversation about how the sausage gets made, how, quote, a bill becomes a law, and how a simple diagnostic test, in this case for a hematologic cancer, will never get into the hands of patients unless people like us are fighting for it. So, Lizette, tell us about your experience in this sort of testing calculus and why we should be having this conversation in the first place. Sure. Well, I think a big part of any kind of discussion when it comes to patient care is that there's so many things that are now coming to be available for patients, be it new medications, be it new testing. And that's great for our patients. We're very happy. But if you don't have access to these drugs, these medications or these tests, then how good how good is it, right? Like, what's the point? Exactly. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that our patients get all the access that they can to whatever life-saving medications or life-saving tests that they can. Now, minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease. People are calling we'll it debate both. That. Yes. <laughs> um, but that's really important for our patients to know about. And it's really important for patients to know that this is a way for their treatment team to know if their treatment is working to the best 
ability that it can work for them. Because knowing if you are minimal or measurable disease negative, meaning that they cannot find through tests any part of your disease, that is telling doctors that your treatment's working. And you want to know when your treatment's working. Because if you are negative and they can't find anything, then there's a possibility that the doctor might change your treatment course. You may, ha- may stop treatment. But if they do find that you are positive and they are finding some of the disease within your body, then that could help doctors know if they have to change your treatment or what they can do to better your treatment. Because I think what patients really want to know is, is this treatment working for me? Is it working the best way that it can work for me? And I think that's really what patients are looking for when they're asking their doctors about treatment. Allison, is this an issue of rights? Should a patient have the right to know there's a test out there for them, whether they can access it or not? I think the information is a right. It's important to note that MRD tests, there's there's one FDA, currently one FDA approved test, but this and many in the pipeline, but it's for very specific types of diseases, very spe- specific types of cancer. So certainly the conversation needs to be had with those blood cancer patients where it's an option. Otherwise, to Lizette's point, you're just kind of spinning your wheels and you could still have some disease in your body. You could have a certain level of disease that would benefit from a different protocol. It's just, it's all information. And and as medicine becomes more and more personalized, this is another tool in a patient's tool belt to tailor their treatment, to tailor their survivorship. Yeah, I'd like to tell a quick story about a very similar test, just for the listeners to get a sense that this isn't limited to hematology in this particular case. I am aware of a diagnostic that's just kind of sitting on the shelf waiting for approval in the esophageal cancer space. And this is for largely men who go to a GI that have GERD, or reflux, or Barrett's esophagus, which is a accelerated version of GERD, or reflux. And there's a test they can give you during your endoscopy that forecasts your risk of esophageal cancer. Wouldn't you like to have that embedded into your biopsy when you get your endoscopy? And yet, it's just sitting there. And patients, in this case, they can't even be made aware that there's a test for the endoscopy, because it's, but in this situation, there is a test that's just sitting there. Lizette, what's your experience in the role of the patient versus the role of the doctor to provide that information that Allison very passionately declared a right? Yes, it's very important for patients to have that information. Now, for a patient, you don't know what you don't know, right? you're not going to know that something is there unless somebody informs you that something is there. Whereas a healthcare professional may know that there's something there and may know that it cannot be utilized. So to reiterate, this is a diagnostic test that you can be administered to determine your risk of relapsing from cancer. Right, and you want to know 
if you're more apt to relapse or not. And your doctor would want to know that because then that's how you plan your treatment. And a lot of times it is that shared decision-making model. So you as the patient will talk to your doctor and your doctor will talk to you to find out the best possible treatments for you, taking into consideration what you would like the treatment outcome to be and your belief system. But the doctor is the one that's going to know at this point if there's something available for you. So what's preventing doctors from being aware of this test, if anything? I think probably a lot of it has to do with with approvals. Um, you know, like I said, there's one on, on the market that is FDA approved, but like many laboratory developed tests, they're very localized and there's thousands, if not millions of them. I mean, there's millions of LDTs that happen every year. LDT, jargon, acronym alert. Laboratory developed tests. Boom. And, you know, sometimes the technicians who are, who are running these LDTs don't even know that they're LDTs. And, you know, the, a simple tweak in a testing protocol turns it into an LDT. So I think that, you know, we don't always know about these things because they're, they're happening on the other side of the country. And it's a very localized type of test that's, that's being administered. And so all of us over here on the East Coast don't know what's happening in California. And, and there's no one place that this is all being tracked. There's no database of LDTs in the world. So we don't even have all of that data and all of that knowledge to really understand what type of tests and what information and what we're getting out of all of this. Right. And just the education for physicians. Blood cancers are not the most widespread of cancer. Uh, so many times you need a specialist to be on top of what's new. And a lot of our blood cancer patients go to community cancer centers where they may not be seeing a hematologist oncologist, which is a blood cancer doctor. They may be seeing an oncologist, which is a cancer doctor that takes care of many different types of cancer. So a lot of times it's just the education with getting physicians to know that these tests exist for these specific blood cancer diagnoses. So in a unicorn world where the FDA approves test X, does that guarantee a doctor will know to give it? No, not necessarily. I think that's where the education comes in. That's where we don't just educate physicians and healthcare professionals, but we also educate patients to ask their doctors, their treatment teams about it. So the more awareness we have, the better. And we also have to utilize the same terminology. We've had patients that said, I'm not getting MRD testing. And when they ask their doctor, they are getting MRD testing, but the doctor's not utilizing the term. They're just saying, oh, yes, you're getting this type of test. And the patient doesn't always know that they're getting that test to see if they have minimal or measurable residual disease. Wait, wait, let's discuss. Why is it minimal or measurable or is it both? I want to let's, let's deconstruct that. Yes, because I have seen articles and I have seen physicians and healthcare professionals utilize both terms. It came out as minimal residual disease, meaning that it's picking up a very small fragment of your disease and it's a very sensitive test. And then now 
people are using measurable, measurable residual disease because the tests are getting better and better. And it's getting to a point where it could be more minimal and minimalistic, but measurable um, is kind of a more general term that they are finding something because not all physicians at this moment in time are utilizing the same number to mean negative or positive residual disease. There's no standardization, which is which is part of the problem. And some of these other tests that are that are out there measure differently. So it's, you know, one out of a hundred thousand or one out of a million cells. And so is that minimal or is it measurable? And what does that mean for your treatment? Are you MRD negative or are you something else? So the left hand isn't talking to the right hand and the right hand isn't talking to the left foot and the right foot isn't talking to the left hand. And is there any semblance of hope that there's coordination around this? Because again, I mentioned before on the show, I've been involved with this for seven years with a bunch of organizations that we can talk about. There's a coalition of organizations when in the theme of together our voices are louder. Mm -hmm. Right. Has that moved the needle? I think it's getting there. I mean, and, and it, an interesting point, it's not just, it's about 10 organizations, correct me if I'm wrong, and as well as industry partners. So, you know, us patient advocates can get out there and scream from the rooftops all we want, but we need other stakeholders in the conversation. And I think that's where some of our pharma partners are, are really helpful. But, you know, I think for it to be really impactful is to to be able to say to show how effective this is, bring it into an economic conversation. We can save this many lives. We can cut back on healthcare costs for heme patients. There are some very measurable outcomes that we can have using this test with a certain subset of patients that I think could help move the needle on that. Right, and patient stories too. Mm -hmm. um, people that have been saved because they knew more so where their disease was heading. And because of MRD, they were able to predict what was going to happen and their treatment team could get them a better treatment and they are thriving. And that's what you want. And that's what the FDA wants to see and hear. And we can start measuring it. Like you said, there's so many studies that are saying that once you know MRD for a person and you utilize and optimize all of the treatments out there for that patient, that there's better outcomes and there's a better quality of life too. So if it's not approved, how are patients getting this? Are these trials? So it is approved for certain indications. Okay. Uh, so right now, if you have a certain type of blood cancer, you can get it prescribed by your physician. There's other types that are not approved, and there's other older tests that measure MRD also that are approved and doctors do utilize. All tests are not created equal. Like you were saying, Allison, that, you know, these tests vary. So I think that's one of the issues, standardization. But you can get these tests right now. And yes, you can always ask what's available for your diagnosis. That will be the most sensitive test out there to let your treatment team know what's going on inside of your body. So when is good good enough? 
and we're talking data and human life at stake here. This is a more perfect union metaphor. How much data do we need? The tests are really great. Is it like there's not enough for this cancer or these doctors disagree? What's the debate? What's the holdup? I think in the clinical trials, there isn't a specific end point. You always want to measure things the same. And the problem is that all of these clinical trials are measuring different things and are operationally defining MRD differently. So I think one of the things that healthcare professionals are trying to do is to get it defined in a more standardized fashion. I think once that happens in clinical trials, I think it'll be easier for the FDA to uh, be able to actually look at what MRD testing is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I also think it kind of goes back to that idea of personalized medicine is becoming more personalized. And what works for you isn't going to work for me and might work differently for Lizette. And, you know, it's, it's hard to measure everybody when you're getting down to such a granular level to be able to come up with those standards that would get it to approval or get it through that process. Yeah, and to that point, I was diagnosed 26 years ago as of this taping when there were only four drugs in the universe. So we're at a point now where these are sort of better problems to have, but I want to pick up on that after the break. All right, we're back, and let's focus on the FDA. Is it fair to say that Americans may be more aware of the FDA after the pandemic with all of the vaccination approvals and the news cycle of what this meant? And could that possibly mean a greater sense of opportunity to engage patients with the FDA? That is a big question. Yes, I think people are more aware of the FDA and the role of the FDA. And it's not just, you know, how you get your chicken on the dinner plate, but mm -hmm. it's much broader than that. I think there's so much more bureaucracy and nuance and being involved in, in patient advocacy on a regulatory level is really hard. This is more than just going to Capitol Hill and talking to your senator. It's more than writing a letter regulatory advocacy is really challenging because there are so many levels of bureaucracy. And especially when you're talking about healthcare, you've got issues of health insurance, you have, you know, issues of different diagnostics and all of the economic factors that play into it. So it's not to sound fatalistic, all hope is not lost. I think this is a, an area that is ripe for patient advocacy, but I think it's going to take some really creative action on behalf of patient advocates and doctors and industry to move the needle a lot faster than it has since you've heard about it. Well, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is, I think, celebrating its 75th year-ish or so Almost. in existence, yes. uh, has had a very heavy influence in policy and regulatory legislation in the Beltway. What are the ingredients in the kitchen to get the FDA to move along? What are the barriers? Sure. I think we, we do start with the grassroots. We do start with communities. We do start with patient stories. We do start with getting the awareness out to patients, 
to healthcare professionals. And I think what Allison said is the most important, that we all have to work together at that point in the game. We have to work with all of our partners to get the awareness out there. And I keep saying awareness because I think that's the most important thing. And I think what you were saying about the pandemic is really important because more people now know what the FDA does. More people now know that the FDA can move swifter. When it wants to. Yes. Um, Selective progress. It is. It really is. And it takes about 10 to 15 years, usually on a clinical trial, for something to move forward. And now we're seeing with the pandemic that if something is working, it does not have to take that long to move through the process. And I think that's a really important lesson that has come out of this pandemic. And I think that gives us more hope as our advocacy partners, all of us, our industry partners, that yes, we were always thinking that it would take that long. We were always thinking that people would be in clinical trials for a long time, and we'd lose a lot of people because of the time that it took to get through these trials and to get from bench to bedside. But now we have that hope that it can happen faster. There are certain medications that have been fast-tracked with the FDA because they saw that there is a real need for that medication. That medication worked. So once something works, now we have the hope that it can get through quicker. What do we have to do about it? We all have to be aligned and really go and all of us present together to the FDA because it is a bigger voice. And that is something that the FDA has responded to in the past. I feel like with the with the pandemic, the FDA said the quiet parts out loud and pulled an Urkel. Oops, did I do that? <laughs> we can actually be productive and make society better really quickly. <laughs> Allison, your thoughts? Well, I think it, I mean, it's a really interesting point because it goes back to, to what you were saying about access. And COVID is obviously a public health disaster. And that's something that we needed to act on quickly. When you think about MRD and the indications for MRD testing, it's such a small population. It's, you know, it's not even oncology. It's, it's these particular blood cancers that can benefit from MRD testing. So it, it, it makes you question the, what we're focusing on. And why are we giving more credence to one thing over another, right? It's we're, all, we're saving lives across the board. If we can get vaccines out for COVID, we're saving lives. If we can get MRD testing out for, you know, the, the blood cancer patients that need it, we're saving lives. So while the scale is not as big, the impact is just as great. And I think that's really what we need to start highlighting a little bit more. Now that we know the FDA can do it, let's get them to do it because it's just as important for, for lives saved. So what frustrates me with all of this is more of a 30,000-foot-in-the-sky idea that we've made so much progress after the Human Genome Project to have a million medicines that help three people that we can't do all the things we had hoped would happen because of all the genomic research and progress. 
it just seems like it's an unnecessary conundrum to face because now instead of, oh, this Ulamab helps 30 million people with any cancer, it's that Ulamab. <laughs> Everything's at Ulamab. It only helps 300 people, but we can't get them the diagnostic. Am I right or wrong in my assumptions? I think that's somewhat accurate. I mean, I think to, to what I was saying before. Somewhat it, accurate. Somewhat. <laughs> when you're only a little bit right. <laughs> but, you know, it's... it. We're going to go for the drug that helps more people to save more lives. Mm -hmm. And what? And while the while it's not explicit, the implication is these lives are more important. Mm. And I would argue that that's not true. That they the three hundred and the three thousand are equally important. And you know, it's certainly not my job, thankfully, to determine that. But if we know that it can happen faster, if we know it doesn't need to take fifteen years, we could save thirty three hundred lives. And get both of them done now. Lizette, what specifically does it take to get the FDA to recognize? Like, how is that actual sausage made? What are the key influencers for them to approve anything? Well, for a test to go to the FDA or drug, the actual maker has to go and ask the FDA. And when they ask the FDA for approval, they do have to go armed with a lot of evidence that it would be beneficial. Once that process starts, then that's when the FDA is really looking into all of the paperwork, all of the trial data, all of this information that they need to make sure that this drug or this test is safe and to make sure that it's beneficial. It does take a long time sometimes. Um, the FDA does prioritize. There's no Disney Fast Pass. There is. Well, there is really. There's like the fast track stuff. There is the fast track stuff. And usually the fast track stuff is something that when you go to the FDA, your clinical trial, you stop that clinical trial because that treatment is so good that you know it's going to work on most people and you need that approved because you need to get it out to people. So that's something that is harder to get. But once your drug is really doing well, it can be fast-tracked and it should be fast-tracked because if it's not, then you're losing people along the way. So the FDA is trying to make sure that everybody is safe. So the FDA is good. We we need to well, I we need to say this. People, we need to say that the FDA <laughs> no more bashing the is FDA. good because it's there to make sure that we are safe. But it's it's human intuition to want an enemy. It who, is. Who are we fighting against? And there's it's such easy pickings because it's like the FCC, the FDA, you know the everyone you could pick on the government. If they're not the bad guy in the proverbial sense. Who is it that we need to influence to be convinced? And it, it, is it just the FDA? Is there better science? Is there not enough science? Are doctors opposed to the science, averse to the data? Where in there lies any rub? Well, I really, the, I mean, it's just the bureaucratic way. And how do we deal with that now that we know that the FDA can do things quicker? Now we know that. It's 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 out there. Oops. Oops. I did it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they can do things quicker. We just need to make sure that all of the systems in place and it's it's majorly 
governmental bureaucracy and, and what's needed. Your tax dollars at work. <laughs> yes. It's mainly that to make sure that things happen quicker. I think people really need to know that we are losing people along the way. That's, that's really important to know. And your point, Allison, one person is enough. If that person is your loved one, that's enough. And it should always be. And hopefully there'll be more indications for MRD, more diagnoses that MRD is going to be helpful with. So there will be more people that will be able to take advantage of MRD. So let's focus on storytelling because that is often very powerful. But again, if that works on a legislator, does that work on the FDA? Allison? I would say yes. I mean, it's, they're humans. <laughs> I know it's... Wait, wait, wait. Go back. <laughs> <laughs> I said it. They're human. You know, I, I would argue that there doesn't have to be an enemy here. I think we just need to figure out how to get our act together to work better to get this across the finish line. I think storytelling can certainly work for the FDA. I think it can work for the physicians that don't know about MRD testing. I mean, to to what we were talking about earlier, this is this is a very niche area and you know, especially in in AYA cancer, but certainly across the board with cancer, you don't know about this stuff, you don't think about this stuff until you need to think about it. Or until there's some commercial on television, you know, after Jeopardy that's talking about MRD You forgot testing. the weed field part of that commercial. <laughs> yes. There's always a weed field. Or a bathtub. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, Wait, what TV are you watching? <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think storytelling is really where it, where it starts, right? This is the, this works. This is necessary because it saved somebody's life or because it improved their quality of life. And that's the conversation that we need to keep having to be able to draw on what the benefits of MRD are. And that conversation is happening because we went into the FDA as LLS and we proposed a new type of trial where we were utilizing different medications at the same time, depending on which medication would suit the patient better. So that's utilizing different medications from different industry. Usually, industry does their own medication, their own trials on their own medications, right? They're not looking to do trials with other industry that have medications in that same space, that same space being that particular diagnosis. What we did is we went in, we asked the FDA, we want to do this trial, and we want to use different types of medications. And it's for personalized medicine. We want to use the best medication out there for that person. And they were so happy to hear that here an organization can pull together different industry sponsors for one trial to make sure that patients can get the best treatment available for them and not have to look in 20 different places for a specific drug. You made a good point before that most people don't care about the sky falling until it's fallen on them. Allison, what's your take on the role of the patients who have perhaps already had the sky fall on them to voice up, to speak up? What can they do? You know, I think for the folks who could have benefited from MRD and missed the mark 
or miss the boat. That is just as significant a story as the person who had MRD testing and it helped them. It's the comparison of it worked, it could have worked for me. This is what happens because I didn't have MRD testing. Or this is what happened because I didn't get this certain type of diagnostic tool. So I think, you know, and we need to see that. We need to see it shows us how beneficial MRD testing can be. And how does LLS capture those voices and how does it get applied you got to the FDA. They said, wow, this is amazing. Have they ever said that before? It's another, probably another podcast. But what do you do with the patient voices while you're doing those trials? Basically, what we're doing is we are amplifying those voices, those voices that have never been heard because they didn't know that they could get better treatment. They really didn't know. So that's what we're doing. And we start out with our advocacy team with the grassroots on a community level on a regional level, and on a national level. So many people have cancer, and MRD is something that, yes, it's really started with the blood cancers, but it is something, and the concept is something that will grow throughout all of the cancers. There's nothing more powerful than telling somebody about something they didn't know they needed and couldn't have at the time. That must really piss a lot of patients (laughs) off. It does. It does. I think probably you would know that best out of all of us. Why? Because I'm just angry by default? (laughs) No, because they didn't have as many treatments back when you were diagnosed. I was diagnosed in the Paleolithic era of oncology in 1995. So, yes, it's like, hey, there's four things for you. Enjoy them. I mean, I totally get that. I hear about breakthroughs in sarcoma treatments and it pisses me off. (laughs) You know, why didn't this happen 15 years ago when my brother was sick? Right. And I'm obviously very grateful that we are moving forward. But yeah, why wouldn't you be mad? So let's wrap up with sort of the dogmatic conundrum of, so what if the technology exists? If patients can't get it, what's the purpose? Lizette. I don't know how I could put that any other way. Really, if you... My job is done. (laughs) I, I think it's harder to know as a patient that something exists out there and you can't get it. I think that is so hard to know. Because remember what I said before, you don't know what you don't know. So a lot of patients don't know that this may exist for them and, and that they have the ability to know more about their disease, thus making it possibly better for their doctor and themselves to plan a treatment. But if you know that there's something there and you're trying to reach for it, and you're being told that you can't have it, and you know that this could mean that you don't have as long of a life to spend with your loved ones. I mean, really, I don't don't even know how to put that in words. Allison, final thoughts? I would think how demoralizing that would be to know that there is an opportunity to improve your life, your quality of life, and not have access to it. I think that's... That's where we're really failing people. Well, on that happy note, (laughs) Lizette Figaro is the Senior Director of Education and Support at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Allison Silberman is the CEO at Stupid Cancer. Thank you for coming on episode one of Testing Our Patients. Thank you. Thank you. So that's all for episode one of Testing Our Patients. On our next episode, What the FDA 
we'll meet two more committed patient advocates who just so happen to be doctors, and they'll share with us their battles getting their patients the MRT testing they need to stay alive. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Tell us your story in your own voice by leaving us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Testing Our Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Ariel Nachman. Our sound mixer is Kyle Moore, and our host is Matthew Zachary. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.